spiritually that illustrates the fundamental difference between the goats and the sheep. The former are incapable of distinguishing between teachers of truth and of error. Not so the latter, for they know not the voice of strangers, but will flee from him. John 10.5 But exactly what did Elisha signify by those statements? It is lamentable to find one commentator in whose notes there is generally that which is sound and good, saying, The prophet intended to deceive the Syrians, and this might lawfully be done, even if he had meant to treat them as enemies, in order to his own preservation. But he designed them no harm by such deception. End of quote. Apart from such a view giving the worst possible interpretation to the prophet's language, such an observation as mentioned is most reprehensible. It is never right to do wrong, and no matter what may be our circumstances, for us to deliberately lie is to sin both against God and our fellows. Such an explanation as this is also absurd on the face of it. Elisha was in no personal danger at all, and now these Syrians were blinded, he could have walked away unmolested by them, had he so pleased. This is not the way, whither? He could not mean to Dothan, for they were already there, and must have known it. I will bring you to the man whom ye seek, And who was that? Why, ultimately and absolutely, the king of Israel, for whom their master had laid an ambush. Note verse 11 of 2 Kings 6. Elisha being merely an obstacle who had hindered him. One who had just obtained from God such an answer to prayer, and who was now showing mercy to his enemies would scarcely lie to them. Fourth, its counterpart. And it came to pass, when they were come into Samaria, that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. Verse 20. Here was still further proof that Elisha harbored no malice against these Syrians and that he intended them no harm. Though they had hostile designs against him, yet he now uses his interest with the Lord on their behalf. Most gracious was that. What an example for every servant of God in meekness, instructing those who oppose themselves. 2 Timothy 2.25 Instead of cherishing ill will against those who are unfriendly to us, we should seek their good and pray to the Lord on their behalf. How this incident reminds us of a yet more blessed example. When the Lord of glory in the midst of his sufferings made intercession for his crucifiers, Isaiah 53.12, Luke 23.34. 
A further miracle was now wrought in answer to Elisha's intercession, showing us once more the mighty power of God and his willingness to employ the same in answer to the petitions of his people. Note how Elisha made good his promise. He led them to the man they really sought, for the next person mentioned is the king of Israel. Fifth, its accompaniment. And the king of Israel said unto Elisha when he saw them, My father, shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? Verse 21. Very solemn is this, and in full accord with his character. The Lord did not open his eyes. Consequently, he was blind to the working of his goodness and incapable of appreciating the magnanimous spirit which had been displayed by the prophet. Here we see what man is by nature, fierce, cruel, vindictive. Such are we and all of our fellows as the result of the fall, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Titus 3.3 It is not but the restraining hand of God which prevents our fellows from falling upon us. Were that hand completely withdrawn, we should be no safer in a civilized country than if we were surrounded by savages or cast into a den of wild beasts. It is not sufficiently realized by us that God's restraining power is upon those who hate us. I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. Acts 18.10 And he answered, Thou shalt not smite them. Wouldst thou smite those whom thou hast taken captive with thy sword and with thy bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. 2 Kings 6.22 Observe how Elisha kept full control of the situation, even though now in the royal quarters, something which every servant of God needs to heed, exercising the authority which Christ has given him. Note too how this verse teaches that mercy is to be shown unto prisoners of war, or taking it in its wider application, how that kindness is to be extended unto our enemies. And this, mark it well, occurred under the Old Testament economy. The divine law commanded its subjects, If thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat, and if he be thirsty, give him water to drink. Proverbs 25.21 And See also Exodus 23, 4 and 5. Much more so under the dispensation of grace are we required to overcome evil with good. Romans 12, 21. Sixth, its sequel. Elisha had his way, and the king prepared great provision for them, and when they had eaten and drunk, He sent them away, and they went to their master. Verse 23 
that he might learn anew that our times, the success or failure of our plans, our health and our lives, are in the hand of the living God, and that he is not only infinite in power, but plenteous in mercy. The sequel was, So the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. Verse 23 God honored the magnanimity of his prophet and rewarded the obedience of his royal master by exempting the land from any further depredations from these savage bands. Seventh, its meaning. May we not see in this incident another lovely gospel picture viewing the graciousness of Elisha unto those who had gone to take him captive as a shadowing forth of God's mercy unto elect sinners. First, we are shown what they are by nature, at enmity with his servant. Second, we behold them as the subjects of his servant's prayers, that they may be granted a sense of their wretched condition. Third, in answer thereto, they are duly brought to realize their impotency. Who so consciously helpless as the blind? Fourth, they were moved to follow the instructions and guidance of God's servant. Fifth, in due course their eyes were opened. Sixth, they were feasted with great provision at the king's own table. Seventh, the picture is completed by our being given to behold them as changed creatures, coming no more on an evil errand into Israel's land. But is there not also an important spiritual meaning and lesson here for Christians, one which has been pointed out in the course of our remarks, namely, how we are to deal with those who seek to injure us. Negatively, we are to harbor no malice against such, nor to take vengeance upon them, even should providence deliver them into our hands. Positively, we are to ask the Lord to nullify their efforts and render them powerless to injure us. But more, we are also to pray that God will open their eyes and treat them kindly and generously. See Matthew 5, 44. Chapter 23, 15th Miracle The passage which is now to engage our attention is much longer than usual, beginning as it does at 2 Kings 6, 24, and running to the end of chapter 7. The whole of it needs to be read at a sitting, so as to perceive its connections, its unity, and its wonders. In it there is a striking mingling of light and shade, the dark background of human depravity, and the bright display of the prophet's faith the exercise of God's justice in his sword judgments upon a rebellious and wayward people, and the manifestation of his amazing mercy and grace. 
and it we are shown how the wrath of man was made to praise the Lord, how the oath of a wicked king was made to recoil on his own head, how the skepticism of his courtier was given the lie, and how the confidence of Elisha in his master's word was vindicated. In it we behold how the wicked was taken in his own craftiness, or to use the language of Samson's parable, how the eater was made to yield meat, and how poor outcast lepers became the heralds of good news. Truth is indeed stranger than fiction. Were one to invent a story after the order of the incident narrated in our present portion, critical readers would scorn it as being too far-fetched. But those who believe in the living and omnipotent God that presides over the affairs of this world, so far from finding anything here which taxes their faith, bow in adoration before Him who has only to speak, and it is done, to will a thing, and it is accomplished. In this case, Samaria was besieged by a powerful enemy, so that its inhabitants were completely invested. The situation became drastic and desperate, for there was a famine so acute that cannibalism was resorted unto. Yet under these extreme circumstances, Elisha announced that within twenty-four hours there would be an abundance of food for everyone. His message was received with incredulity and scorn. Yet it come to pass, just as he had said, without a penny being spent, a gift being made, or a blow being struck, the investing Syrians fleeing in panic and leaving their vast stores of food to relieve the famished city. We begin our examination of this miracle by considering first its reality. After our previous remarks, it may strike the hearer that it is quite an unnecessary waste of effort to labor a point which is obvious and offer proof that a miracle was wrought on this occasion. The writer had thought so too, had he not, after completing his own meditations thereon, consulted several volumes on the Old Testament, only to find that this wonder is not listed among the miracles associated with Elisha. Even such a work as the Companion Bible, which supplies what is supposed to be a complete catalogue of the miracles of Elijah and Elisha, omits this one. We offer no solution to this strange oversight, but since other writers have failed to see in 2 Kings 7, One of the marvels of our prophet, we feel that we should present some of the evidence which, in our judgment, furnishes clear proof that a supernatural event was wrought on this occasion, and that we are fully warranted in connecting it with him on whom Elijah's mantle fell. The first thing that we would take note of is that 
When the people were in such desperate straits and the king was so beside himself that he rent his clothes and swore that the prophet should be slain that very day, we are told, but contrastedly, Elisha sat in his house and the elders sat with him. Chapter 6, verse 32, which suggests to us that they had waited upon the Lord and had received assurance from Him of His intervention in mercy. Second, that the prophet was in communion with and in possession of the secret of the Lord is borne out by the remaining words of the verse where he tells his companions of Jehoram's evil intention and announces the approach of his agent before he arrived. Next, we find the prophet plainly declaring that an abundant supply of food would be provided on the morrow. Second Kings 7.1 And he did so in his official character as the man of God. Verse 2 And repeated in verses 17 and 19 which, as we have seen in previous chapters, is the title that is always accorded him when God was about to work mightily through him or for him in answer to his prayers. Consider, too, the circumstances. There was a great famine in Samaria, and behold, they, the Syrians, besieged it until an ass's head was sold for fourscore pieces of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five pieces of silver. Second Kings 6.25 Nevertheless, the prophet declared that there should suddenly be provided sufficient food for all, and the sequel shows it came to pass just as he had predicted. Nothing short of a miracle could have furnished such an abundant supply. The manner in which that food was furnished clearly evidenced the supernatural. As an impartial reading of chapter 7, verses 6 and 7 will make clear. For it was their enemies who were made to supply their tables. Finally, if we give due weight to the according to the word of the Lord, and as the man of God had said, in chapter 7, verses 16 and 17, and link with chapter 4, verses 43 and 44, where another of his miracles is in view, and so referred to, the demonstration is complete. Second, its occurrence. This was the terrible shortage of food in the city of Samaria due to its being invested by an enemy so that none of its inhabitants could go forth and obtain fresh supplies. And it came to pass after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his hosts and went up and besieged Samaria. 2 Kings 6.24 Strange as it may at first seem and sound to the hearer, we see here one of the many internal evidences of the divine inspiration of the scriptures. 
This will appear if we quote the last clause of the verse immediately preceding. So the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. Had an impostor written this chapter, attempting to palm off upon us a pious forgery, he surely would not have been so careless as to place an immediate juxtaposition to statements which a casual hearer can only regard as a flat contradiction. No, one who was inventing a story had certainly made it read consistently and plausibly. Hence we arrive at the conclusion that this is no fictitious narrative from the pen of a pretender to inspiration. So the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel, of which Samaria was a part, as verse 20 shows. And it came to pass after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his hosts and went up and besieged Samaria. Verses 23 and 24. Now the placing of those two statements side by side is a clear intimation to us that the scriptures need to be read closely and carefully, that their terms require to be properly weighed, and that failure so to do will inevitably lead unto serious misunderstanding of their purport. It is because infidels only skim passages here and there and are so poorly acquainted with the word that they charge it with being full of contradictions. But there is no contradiction here, and if it presents any difficulty to us, it is entirely of our own making. The first statement has reference to the freebooting and irregular bands which had from time to time preyed on the Samaritans. Compare the companies of chapter 5, verse 2. What we would term today commando raids, whereas chapter 6, verse 24 speaks of organized war, a mass invasion. Then Hadad gathering together all his hosts. And it came to pass after this, that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his hosts and went up and besieged Samaria. Verse 24. The opening clause is far more than a historical time mark. Properly understood, it serves to bring out the character of this man. The introductory and bids us link his action here with what is recorded in the context. In the remote context, chapter 5, we saw how that God graciously healed Naaman of his leprosy. Naaman was the commander-in-chief of this man's army and had been sent by him into Samaria to be cured of his dread disease. But so little did the Syrian monarch appreciate that signal favor Shortly after, he assembled an increased force of his bands and warred against Israel. 2 Kings 6, 8 His plan was to capture Jehoram, but being foiled by Elisha, he sent his men to capture the prophet. And that too, he failed. 
For in answer to Elisha's prayer, they were smitten with blindness, though instead of taking advantage of their helplessness, he later prayed for their eyes to be opened, and after having them feasted, sent them home to their master, who had returned to Syria. And it came to pass after this, not that Ben-Hadad repented of his former actings, nor that he was grateful for the mercy and kindness which had been shown his soldiers, but that he gathered all his hosts and went and besieged Samaria. Not only was this base ingratitude against his human benefactors, but it was blatant defiance against Jehovah himself. Twice the Lord had manifested his miracle-working power, and that in grace on his behalf. And here was his response. Yet we must look further if we are to perceive the deeper meaning of it came to pass after this, for we need to answer the question, why did the Lord suffer this heathen to invade Israel's territory? The reply is also furnished by the context. Ben-Hadad was not the only one who had profited by God's mercies in the immediate past. The king of Israel had also been divinely delivered from those who sought his life. And how did he express his appreciation? Did he promptly institute a religious reformation in his dominions and tear down the altars which his wicked parents had set up? No, so far as we are informed, he was quite unmoved and continued in his idolatry. It is written, The curse causeless shall not come, Proverbs 26.2. When God afflicts a people, be it a church or a nation, it is because he has a controversy with them. If they refuse to put right what is wrong, he chastises them. God then was acting in judgment on Samaria when he commissioned the Syrians to now enter their land in full force. O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. I will send him against a hypocritical nation. Isaiah 10, 5 and 6. So again, at a later date, the Lord said of Nebuchadnezzar, Thou art my battle axe and weapons of war, for with or by thee will I break in pieces the nations, and with thee will I destroy kingdoms. Jeremiah 51, 20. It is in the light of such passages as these we should view the activities of Hitler and Mussolini. Though God's time to completely cast off Israel had not come in the days of Jehoram, yet he employed Ben-Hadad to grievously afflict his kingdom. And there was a great famine in Samaria, and behold, they besieged it until an ass's head was sold for fourscore pieces of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five pieces of silver. Verse 25 
troubles seldom come singly, for God means to leave us without excuse if we fail to recognize whose hand it is which is dealing with us. Ben-Hadad chose his hour to attack when Israel was in sore tribulation, which serves also to illustrate Satan's favorite method of assaulting the saints. Like the fiend that he is, he strikes when they are at their lowest ebb, coming as the roaring lion when their nerves are already stretched to the utmost, seeking to render them both praiseless and prayerless while lying on a bed of sickness, or to instill into their minds doubts of God's goodness in the hour of bereavement, or to question His promises when the meal has run low in their barrel. But since we are not ignorant of His devices, 2 Corinthians 2.11, we should be on our guard against such tactics. And there was a great famine in Samaria. It needs to be pointed out in these days of skepticism and practical atheism that the inhabitants of earth are under the government of something infinitely better than fickle fortune, namely, in a world which is ruled over by the living God. Goodly harvests or the absence of them are not the result of chance nor the effect of a blind fate. In Psalm 105.16 we read that God called for a famine upon the land, He brake the whole staff of bread. And my hearer, when He calls for a famine, neither farmers nor scientists, so-called, can prevent or avert it. We have read in the past of famines in China and in India, but how faintly can we conceive of the awful horrors of one? As intimated, the Lord called for this famine on Samaria because the king and his subjects had not taken to heart his previous chastisements of the land for their idolatry. When a people refused to heed the rod, then he smites more heavily. And there was a great famine in Samaria, and behold, they besieged it. Their design was not to storm but to starve the city by throwing a powerful military cordon around it so that none could either go out or come in. And as the king of Israel was passing by upon the wall, probably taking stock of his defenses, and seeking to encourage the garrison, there cried a woman unto him, saying, Help, my lord, O king! Second Kings 6.26 And well she might, for they were now deprived of the bare necessities of life, with a slow but painful death by starvation staring them in the face. Ah, my hearer! How little we really value the common mercies of this life until they are taken from us. Poor woman, she turned to lean upon a broken reed, seeking relief from the apostate king, rather than making known her need unto the Lord. There is no hint anywhere in the narrative 
that the people betook themselves unto the throne of grace. And he said, If the Lord do not help thee, whence shall I help thee? Out of the barn floor or out of the winepress? Verse 27. That was not the language of submission and piety, but as the sequel shows, of derision and blasphemy. His language was that of anger and despair. The Lord will not help, I cannot, so we must perish. Out of the abundance of his evil heart his mouth spake. Coming down a little, the king said unto her, What aileth thee? And she answered, This woman, pointing to a companion, said unto me, Give thy son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and did eat him, and I said unto her the next day, Give thy son that we may eat him, and she hath hid her son. Verses 28 and 29, which says the desperate conditions which then prevailed, and the awful past to which things had come. Natural affection yielded to the pangs of hunger. This too must also be regarded as a most solemn example of the divine justice and vengeance on idolatrous Israel. It must be steadily borne in mind that the people of Samaria had cast off their allegiance to Jehovah and were worshipping false gods, and therefore, according to his threatenings, the Lord visited them with severe judgments. They were so blockaded by the enemy that all ordinary food supplies failed them, so that in their desperation they were driven to devour the most abominable offals and even human flesh. Of old the Lord had announced unto Israel, If ye will not for all this hearken unto me, but will walk contrary unto me, then I will walk contrary unto you also in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins, and ye shall eat the flesh of your sons. Leviticus 26, verses 27 to 29. And again, the Lord shall bring a nation against thee, and he shall besiege thee, and thou shalt eat the fruit of thine own body, the flesh of thy sons and of thy daughters, which the Lord God hath given thee in this siege and in this straitness. Deuteronomy 28, 49-53 More completely fulfilled at the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. No words of God's shall fall to the ground. His threatenings equally with his promises, are infallibly certain of fulfillment. How few there are in Great Britain today who realize that but for the infinite mercy of God, the people in these isles had but three years ago been reduced to sore straits. We too were besieged both by sea and air, and only a sovereign God prevented our merciless enemies 
than totally succeeding in cutting off our principal food supplies. We are not unmindful of the kindness and help of the United States and the still nobler generosity of Canada, but all their loans and gifts had been useless if they failed to cross the ocean. In that case, long before now, the specter of famine had stalked our cities. Nor are we unmindful of our intrepid Royal Navy, nor the brave men who manned our merchant ships. But who was it that imparted such courage to them that again and again after their ships had been torpedoed and themselves left to spend awful days in an open boat, as soon as they were rescued, volunteered to man other ships and went forth afresh to bring in vital supplies There is a human side to it, and we greatly admire the same. But there is also a divine side to it, and we have reminded ourselves of it. Though they recognize not the hand of the Lord in deliverance, the people of Britain now breathe easier since they believe that the submarine menace has been mastered, and we now have full control of the air, But multiplied weapons, both of defense and of offense, are no security against the displeasure of him whom we continue to defy, with our Sabbath plowing, harvesting, pleasuring, and many other things. Agriculture may be organized here on a scale it never has been before, yet that guarantees neither crops nor weather to gather them. Of old God said unto Israel, I have smitten you with blasting and mildew, when your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increased, the palmer worm devoured them, yet have ye not returned unto me. I have sent among you the pestilence after the manner of Egypt, your young men have I slain with a sword, yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Amos 4, verses 9 and 10. The Almighty has a thousand weapons in His armory by which He can slay us. Will our nation remain deaf to His continued warnings until His patience is exhausted? It looks very much like it. And it came to pass when the king heard the words of the woman that he rent his clothes and he passed by upon the wall and the people looked and Behold, he had sackcloth within upon his flesh. Verse 30. According to the custom of those days and the ways of Oriental people, this was the assumption of the external garb of a penitent. But what was it worth while he renounced not his idols? Not a particle in the eyes of him who cannot be imposed upon by any outward shows. It was a pose which the king adopted for the benefit of his subjects to signify that he felt deeply for their miseries, yet he lamented not for his own iniquities, which were the procuring cause of the calamity. Instead of so doing, the very next verse tells us that he took an awful oath that Elisha 
should be promptly slain. Render your heart and not your garments. Joel 2.13 is ever the divine call to those under chastisement. For God desireth truth, reality in the inward parts. Psalm 51.6 As it is useless to wear sackcloth when we mourn not for our sins, so it is in vain to flock to church on a day of prayer and then return at once to our vanities and idols. In the past, Israel complained, Wherefore have we fasted, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our souls, and thou takest no knowledge? And God made them answer by saying, Behold, in the days of your fasting ye find pleasure, and things wherewith ye grieve others. Ye fast not as to this day to make your voice heard on high. Isaiah 58, 3 and 4 Thus there is such a thing as not only praying but fasting and yet for God to pay no attention to it. At a later date he said to them, When ye fasted and mourned, did ye at all fast unto me, even to me? Should ye not hear the words which the Lord hath cried by the former prophets? Zechariah 7, 5 and 7 While a nation tramples upon the divine commandments, neither prayer and fasting nor any other religious performances are of any avail with him who says, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. 1 Samuel 15.22 There must be a turning away from sin before there can be any real turning unto God. Chapter 24 Fifteenth Miracle Then he said, God do so and more also to me if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, stand on him this day. Second Kings 6.31 This was the language of hatred and fury, refusing to own that it was his own impenitency and obduracy which was the procuring cause of the terrible straits to which his kingdom was now reduced. Jehoram turned an evil eye on the prophet and determined to make a scapegoat of him, as though the man of God was responsible for the famine. Israel's apostate king took a horrible oath that he should be promptly slain. He was well acquainted with what had happened in the reign of his parents when in answer to the words of Elijah, there had been no rain on Samaria, 1 Kings 17.1, and he probably considered that his own desperate situation was due to Elisha's prayers. Though just as they have declined to recognize that the protracted drought was a divine judgment upon his own idolatry, so his son now ignored the fact that it was his personal sins that had called down the present expression of divine wrath. This solemn and awful incident 
should be viewed in the light of that divine indictment, the carnal mind is enmity against God, Romans 8, 7, and that, my hearer, is true of your mind and of my mind by nature. You may not believe it, but he before whose omniscient eye your heart is open declares it to be so. You may be quite unconscious of your awful condition, but that does not alter the fact. If you were better acquainted with the true God, made sensible of His ineffable holiness and inexorable justice, and realized that it was His hand that smite you when your body suffers acute pain, or when your circumstances are most distressing, you might find it easier to discover how your heart really beats toward Him and the ill will you bear Him. True, that fearful enmity does not always manifest itself in the same way or to the same degree, for in His mercy God often places His restraining hand upon the wicked and prevents the full outbursts of their hostility and madness. But when that restraining hand is removed, their case is like that described in Revelation 16, 10, and 11. They gnawed their tongues for pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and repented not of their deeds. And why do we say that Jehoram's conduct on this occasion made manifest the enmity of the carnal mind against God? Because while he was unable to do Jehovah any injury directly, he determined to visit his spite upon him indirectly by maltreating his servant. Ah, my hearer, there is important if solemn instruction for us in that. Few people realize the source from which proceeds the bitterness. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T six L three T five you may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, 
God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.